Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this episode of the Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Daniel Vacanti. Based in the Miami-Fort Lauderdale area, Daniel has two decades of experience working with and writing and speaking about lean and agile practices, including helping to develop the Kanban method for knowledge work in 2007. He is the co-founder of Actionable Agile and more recently of ProKanban.org, which helps teams and organizations improve their agile practices through training and courses. You can follow him on Twitter at Dan Vacanti, and as I mentioned, you can check out his website at ProKanban.org. Daniel is the author of a number of books that have been published on LeanPub and elsewhere including Flow Metrics for Scrum Teams, because story points were never a part of Scrum anyway, When Will It Be Done, Lean Agile Forecasting to Answer Your Customer's Most Important Question, and Actionable Agile Metrics for Predictability, an introduction. In his books, Daniel covers a lot of ground on lean and agile methods and approaches, with a particular focus on subjects like probability mathematics, and in particular on freeing teams from approaches that don't use data or math properly and engage in wasteful guesstimation that can we can so easily confuse for sound analysis. Um, in this interview, we're going to talk about Daniel's background and career, professional interests, his books, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about his experience as a self-published author. So thank you very much, Daniel, for being on the Front Matter podcast. Thanks so much for the invitation, Len. I'm really, really excited to be here. Um, g- g- glad to have had the invitation and uh, can't wait to, to get this conversation going. Yeah, thanks. And we were really, really glad to see your, your great book sort of appear uh, over over time on LeanPub. That was really nice. Um, and, and to find an audience as well. Um, I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and how you found your way into a career uh, working in sort of lean and agile methods. Um, born, born and raised in D.C., um, actually in the city, not too many people. I think I've only met one other person in my life who was actually born in inside Washington, D.C., so... You know, if you're if you're in DC and listening, I'm glad, glad that you are. Um, I uh, my uh, as you kind of suggested, my um, my my interest early on was was in mathematics. I actually graduated with a, a math degree or maths, you know, depending on, on where you are in the world. Um, uh, but quickly found out that you really can't get a job in mathematics. I mean, that's just kind of a really, really hard thing to do. But it, but what's interesting is if you could spell C, then you got hired as a programmer when, uh, you know, right, right when I got, when I, when I graduated. So that's how I got into software development was, um, you know, I sent out a resume and, and, and they hired me. Uh, I, I got into, you know, agile methodologies um, just kind of by pure dumb luck um a couple of the teams that i was working on um were, were were kind of experimenting with them and um i got sucked into the management side of things because i kept looking around for better ways to do stuff i mean i kept i kept thinking you know my, my whole career there's there's got to be there's got to be a better way you know when you have um when you have dates dictated to you and uh you know uh, schedules and scope and everything dictated it's like there, there's there's got to be something something different so um, the opportunity came along and there was nobody else who really volunteered to, to do the take up the management side of things. So I, so I did. And that's really how my, my agile career uh, took off. It's, it's, it's really interesting. Actually, I didn't know that, that you, that you um, studied maths and then sort of, you know, t- took up uh, programming sort of, you know, as a result of a job application. So did they, did they do a lot of training for you? Was it a big company or a startup? You know, what was, what was that experience like? It was, it was, it was a startup ish um, that had a, uh, that had a contract with a, a big company. So essentially I was working, even though the company, the, the, the company that was paying my paycheck was a startup. It really had the, the feel of a you know a, a, a huge corporation you know and things like that, and um, yeah no it wasn't really much on the job training it was really kind of pushing at the deep end and you know and learn 
which is uh, as part of um, as part of the, the maths degree that I got, you know, they forced you essentially to get a computer science minor. That was because there was so much computer science in it that you essentially, you know, graduated university with a computer science minor. And I kept thinking, I was sitting through all these computer science classes. I'm like, when, when am I ever going to use this? Right? This is, you know, this is a waste of my time. When am I actually going to use it? And, uh, come, come to find out that um, that there was some use, but. Uh, I will say this, and I'm, I'm guessing many people, many other people, I'm hoping many other people in your, your program have probably said this, pretty much everything I learned about, about software, about work, about everything, uh, I learned on the job. Um, I did not really learn much anything useful at, uh, at university. Um, that's, that's really interesting, actually. That leads me to um, ask, ask a version of a question, which is a way into the bigger topic, but a, a version of a question that often comes up, was, which is, um, if you were starting out now, or if you were giving advice to someone who were starting out now, who was going to have a career in, let's say, you know, computer programming and software development, and maybe with you know, an eye on becoming someone like you in the future, moving to the management and consulting side and things like that, would you recommend doing a full computer science degree? Whole, wholeheartedly, no. Absolutely not. I would say waste your, uh, don't waste your time, don't waste your money. Um, you know, so, so many good code camps out there now that you can go, if, if really what you're trying to do is, is, is get into, into programming. Um, just, just so many really, really, and really good resources out there that we just never, we, we <laughs> I, I don't know how old you are. So, um, but you know, back, back when I was growing up, you know, the, the interwebs was this very, very nascent thing, right. Um, still using, uh, you know, te text browsers like links and, and, you know, and stuff like that. So just, just didn't have the, the resources that were available to us. So, um, and, and I guess I can only speak for American universities too. I don't know about, about universities abroad in, in Canada. I'm sure they're much better. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, I would, and not that I have an opinion on this. Can you tell when I don't have yeah, any, no. you know, at all, but yeah, I, mean, yeah. That, that, I don't have any regrets in my life, but probably my biggest regret is going to university and paying for it. Oh, that's really interesting that you're uh, so, so straightforward about that. Some people kind of, you know, hedge it a little bit, but to be, mm -hmm. to be that straightforward about it, it's, um, it's, it's one, one sort of question I have about that. It's actually kind of, you mentioned, you know, actually, actually being born in DC and, and growing up in that area. I've, I've done some, you know, client work in that area and there are some big, big, uh, very kind of process heavy organizations that, that do work down there. Um, and I, I do believe that that at least in the past, typically the sort of having a college degree might actually have been an entry requirement that sort of HR departments had no way around. Has that changed, do you think? I mean, it's like, let's say to be specific about it, like in say the defense industry or or, or, or things like that. You know, I, 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 I honestly can't speak to say like something specifically like the defense industry or something like that. But most um, most of the companies that I work at now, that I work with nowadays, I don't believe they do have that requirement and they would be hard pressed, I think, if they did. So, I mean, you, you're absolutely right with your point. I think way, way back when, yeah, you had to actually have that that degree to even get your foot in the door, you know, that, that was kind of table stakes type stuff. Um, but, uh, but less and less, I don't, I really, I don't really come across that anymore. Um, nor, like I said, nor would I think it's, it's, um, beneficial existentially to have mm -hmm. that requirement. I mean, most of the best developers I've ever met um, don't have, uh, you know, that degree or certainly don't, don't even have a computer science degree, uh, but don't even have a university degree. Um, a, a couple of people come to mind that don't even have a university degree are probably the best developers I've ever met. 
Yeah, I've, I've I've heard I've heard that from from quite a few different people in the past, um, and I, I have I have actually heard um, specifically that in some some of those you know typically more rigid industries like defense that actually things are kind of opening up on that front. You know, there's things like the the, the sort of notorious war for talent in in mm. software development and stuff like that kind of force your hand, right? And um and again, as you mentioned, like you know the kind of resources that are available to you, including learning resources. You know, um, lots of people I interview for this podcast started with a magazine and sort of typing typing programs into something um and so we're, we're sort of began as kind of self-taught anyway but with yeah with code camps and like with just the incredible resources available today and not just not just for learning but for actually doing right like you know create a fork a repo on github you know and you can just get going on something um with you know relatively little little training and just you know make a real product um, but, I mean, and that yeah that's exactly it i mean we, like i said with, with with everything that's out there right now um, just everything at your fingertips for free, you know, all of this stuff, just, you know, just, just for free, you, you can get going. Um, it, to me, it seems, uh, probably the nicest word I can think of is superfluous mm-hmm. you know, to go through the, to go through the quote unquote rigor of a university degree. Yeah. My, uh, my, my personal position uh, on that is that, um, one of the really important things that comes from getting a university degree, and this is specifically in person kind of learning, um, is the range of acquaintance that you can develop there. And so things like, you know, doctors become a lot less intimidating when you remember what it was like going to the bar on Friday nights with one, you know, when, <laughs> when you were 18 <laughs> together. And, yeah. um, you know, there's there's a kind of, it's kind of like a bit of a middle sort of ticket to the middle class is like, well, now you've got a, if you get in legal trouble, you can call your lawyer buddy um, and stuff yeah. like that. And that that kind of, that kind of, I mean, the, the, you know, sort of cheesy word for it is networking, but that kind of lifetime, lifelong friendships and stuff like that can, can, can develop are really important. But if you're asking someone to spend four years of their youth and go into hundred thousand hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt so they can sort of make some friends um you know i, I understand that that doesn't necessarily sound sound like the best argument um and and you mentioned you know different countries it does vary as well right like if you live in a country where tuition is low um you know that decision's very different from when it's like you, you know you're going to have to delay some important life choices probably uh because of the debt that you accumulate but it's it's tough uh but uh especially when you're young um but but i think a lot of people actually enjoy hearing the sort of straightforwardness of your your answer um and so uh you mentioned you sort of moved into the sort of management side of things and i i know you've told this story before but if it i think people listening to this would be quite interesting to hear that you know you were there sort of at the origins of sort of kanban and kind of as sort of knowledge work kind of process so if you could just talk you know for a few minutes about what that story actually is yeah, it was um, uh, a company called Corbis in uh, in Seattle, um, owned by somebody that m- most people, hopefully, you have heard of. Uh, a guy by the name of Bill Gates owned owned this company called called Corbis, uh, you know, in Seattle. And um, this uh, th- this this team was was tasked with kind of kind of changing the way that they work. They 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 weren't effective. It started off in in the sustainment and maintenance group. Um, and how Corbis did the same in a maintenance at the time was it was very, very waterfallish um, and just very not effective. And so the incoming CIO uh, challenged them and said, hey, you know, we, you know, we, we need to fix this because, you know, our, our customers are simply not happen, uh, not happy. Uh, you know, and so the team got together, led by a gentleman named uh, Darren Davis, uh, got together and kind of kind of dreamt, dreamt this all up. Um, I happened to be consulting there at the time, um, and it was my job to then scale help, I should say help, to scale the practices that the sustainment 
um, sustainment engineering group did scale that to the rest of engineering, you know, how we did all of software development for, uh, you know, for Corbis, we had uh, a couple of big projects that we, we kicked off and, um, uh, we're in the process of ramping up a lot of, um, of the engineering effort. And so, uh, I was there to help, you know, how do we, how do we take some of these flow principles that we were playing around with on, on the sustainment team? Um, and, and take them to the to the rest of engineering. So, learned, just learned a lot, a lot, a lot from that. And uh, the, the lessons I learned from there, I've, I've carried with me for the rest of the for the rest of my career. Um, again, more fundamental lessons than anything that I learned at, uh, at university. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and I'm really interested to sort of talk about those a little bit more in depth. Um, but um, so we've used we've sort of used. I used one technical term, a Kanban, um, and then you used one <laughs> one flow, um, yeah. and you and you used another one, waterfall. Um, and so if we could talk about the, we could probably talk about those what those three things are, and then sort of explain your positions on and what you've learned, what you've learned about them. So I guess if you could just in, give the sort of quick introduction to what waterfall planning is uh, in in software development. You know, um, yeah. you know, I keep, I keep meaning because there was, there was a, uh, there was a paper. I think that original paper on waterfall was written. I want to say in the sixties, do not quote me on this. People are probably going to send you hate mail now. Um, I don't know if they do that anymore, but I think, I think it was in the sixties and I keep meaning to go back and I've read excerpts of this paper, but my understanding when you read the original waterfall paper, it's not as waterfallish as, as people make it, make it out to be. Um, but the idea, anyway, the idea behind waterfall, generally speaking, and this, this might be a crude uh, generalization, but the idea of waterfall is that um, you essentially have these, um, the, these gates, right? So you, you do say you're kicking off a project. So you do a whole bunch of planning and try to discover all of the scope upfront. It's like, this, this is the scope of this project. This is what it's going to be. And you decide that all. And once all that's decided, then you kind of kick it over to analysis. Like, okay, now how do we take this scope and how do we break it, break it into, um, you know, work that we understand, but then you do, you do all of that analysis. And only when all of that analysis is done and like, okay, now we understand this thing, then you throw it over into development and you do all of the development on all that analysis, all that scope uh, that you just came up with. And only when you're done with all the development, um, uh, you know, for, for all of that scope, then you throw it, you know, everything over the wall um, and uh, to, to test and, and so on and so on. And that, that's the idea. That's why they kind of kind of call it waterfall, because the stuff just kind of, you know, kind of. I was going to say flows, but that's the wrong word. It's it's more kind of dumps onto uh, the next step. The whole thing kind of just dump, dumps on the on the next next step down downstream. It's a very 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 big um, big batch, big upfront planning type of um, uh, type of approach. And you know, it, it was practiced for for many many years. But certainly certainly with the advent of things like you know the the internet and things like that, where um, life cycles of projects and things like that. Um, became much, you know, the being able to get those things uh, shortened became so important. Uh, you know, having things like waterfall meant that you couldn't respond to, you know, market changes as, you know, as quickly as you needed to. And you can imagine, you know, if, if you're some poor tester, let's say, let's say a project has been scoped to, to be 18 months. Well, you know, almost certainly the whole schedule will have been chewed up you know, before anything ever gets to test. And so now, you know, now you're this poor tester and you've got, you know, two weeks to test something that has been worked on uh, for 18 months. And now you find all these bugs and test, but you're like, well, but, but we said the project was going to be done in two weeks. We don't have any time to fix this stuff. Um, and so it became, it became very, 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 very prob problematic, which I would argue was the whole impetus uh, behind the rise of agile right that's that's why agile practices came to be be prominent because waterfall just wasn't working in, in the changing marketplace 
Yeah, thanks. Thanks for that really great answer. I'll I'll give my own sort of you know sort of building on that. I, I love the word dump um, because it does actually capture something kind of affective about the process, right? But the there's something I I don't really have a term for it, but that that I kind of think in my head of like a kind of like self-defeating realism or a kind of romantic realism, which I encountered in the world of kind of financial modeling um, myself. But often people think that you're not being rigorous unless you have a really detailed plan. And then they, they, they have these ideas that there's the people who are going to be in charge at the top. They're going to commission some people to make a detailed plan, right? So they're dumping off the planning onto those people. Those people right there hundred page word document about how this program is going to be built. Uh, and then they dump that off to some, some, you know, project managers who are like, okay, we've literally got 1000 spelled out things that need to be done. We're going to hire a hundred people to do 10 each. And then we're going to dump that onto the, the those tasks onto those people. And then all the way up the chain, you're going to have people going, what stage are we at? What stage are we at in the plan? What stage are we at in the plan? And then, as you said, you know, at the end, then it gets dumped onto some testers who are often under incredible pressure to not find problems because that the problems are not specified in the plan. Um, <laughs> uh, and, and especially any specific ones you might find. And so it kind of, it's not just that it disrupts the time, it's the whole mindset gets kind of disrupted when, when you find a problem. And that's why Boeing's fall out of the sky, to put it very crudely. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, and, um, uh, and so what in, in, in response to these pressures and the, what you're describing in your own story is like people were starting to realize that like, there might in the gap between you making your plan and this product coming out, you know, we might have learned something about the market and we might want to change something. Um, and so you, then you get the, 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 another technical term of agile being developed. Um, and so in that context, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about exactly how the sort of Kanban process, I mean, let, let's, let's ignoring sort of all the details of the origin story, which I'll link to where you talk about that in, in, a, in a talk on YouTube, but what is the Kanban process? What, what, what physical form does it take? Uh, and for people who let's say don't know anything about it at all. Yeah, and this this it's 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 a bit um, uh, it's maybe a bit abstract than, than what people are are might might be expecting or might might even assume. Um, in that it's not it's not Kanban is not a formal methodology. It's not even I would argue a formal framework. Um, the way that we like to characterize Kanban is more of a strategy. It's a it's a strategy to achieve flow, um, and the the basic thinking is is this is. Um, you know, whatever job that, that you, the global you out there, whatever job you are doing, that job exists probably to deliver value for a customer. So there's a customer somewhere that, that's waiting for, you know, for your help or your input or whatever, uh, for you waiting for you to at least contribute to del delivery of value. One of the best ways, what we've learned, and we'll probably get into this, one of the best ways to optimize that delivery of value is to focus on this thing called flow. We keep talking about flow. Um, hopefully we'll talk some more about it, but uh, if you want to optimize customer value, you optimize, optimize for flow. If you buy all that, and I am waving my hands, this is a podcast, so nobody can really see me waving my hands or whatever, but I'm, I'm waving my hands quite a bit. If you buy that argument, then what Kanban is, is really it's a strategy to achieve flow. A strategy. It's not the only strategy, but it is a strategy to achieve flow. So if you use Kanban, you'll achieve flow. If you achieve flow, the idea is you'll probably optimize delivery of customer value in 25 words or less. 
Right. Yeah. No. I've, I've got I've got a quote here from uh, your actionable Agile Metrics book. Uh, simply stated, flow is the movement and delivery of customer value through a process, um, yeah. which is which is great because I think it it sort of represents it. It's a sort of you know I mean it, in a sense it's abstract, but it's very grounded in in two in a couple of concepts. You know, movement, delivery, customer value, and process. Uh, but yeah. it's it's a process, not the process, right? And so you know, different companies and teams would presumably find their own that part of the activity of, of achieving flow is sort of thinking about how you do things and how you want to do things. But in particular, that customer value concept is very important. Um, and one of the, I'm just gathering this from from your your writings and then other things I know about the, the sort of industry, but like one item of customer value is the answer that you can deliver is answering their question, when will it be done, which is the title mm-hmm. of one of your one of your books. Um, and how do you wrap customers' heads around the reality of what kind of value you can give when you answer that question? Because people, I'd like to put it sort of like the leading way to put it would be people want a deterministic prediction and what you can, the only honest thing you can, you can give them is a probabilistic forecast. So if you could just talk generally speaking about your, your position on, on, on that and, and, and how you, how you go about explaining that to say a, a sort of recalcitrant customer? If um, if I can continue my brutal on- honesty, uh, I, I I don't know that I have a good answer to that. Um, if, if I did have a good answer to that, I'd probably be sitting on a beach somewhere counting all of my money. And uh, as much as I love you, Len, I probably wouldn't be talking to you. <laughs> and, and I'd be doing doing something else. I don't. I really. I I don't know. I mean, this it's it's one of the reasons that um, I I wrote that book because. If we can loop back to to our original conversation about about waterfall, the to me the fatal flaw in waterfall, if you know, if there is just one, is this idea of deterministic thinking. You know, I, I love the I love the fact that you use determinism. The, you know, most people believe that we can know with one hundred percent certainty what our scope is going to be upfront. We we know with one hundred percent certainty what our schedule is going to be upfront what our finances are going to be up front. Um, and the truth of the matter is we, we don't, the future is full of uncertainty. You know, I, I always say this, you know, if, if you can predict the future, if people are good at predicting the future, then I've got, you know, tons of wonderful business ideas for you because that's, you know, it's generally, you know, the future is just full of uncertainty. Once people recognize, once somebody recognizes that, Hey, the future is full of uncertainty, then the next step they need to take is, okay, well, uncertainty means we need to drop deterministic thinking and now start taking more probabilistic approach and embracing probability because probability is is literally, and I mean, literally, literally is literally the the science of uncertainty, right? That's, that's, that's what, that's what we're talking about. Um, So, but getting, getting customers to, to your original question, getting customers to understand that, Hey, you know, this is the, the, the best I can do is, is probably give you a range of possible outcomes, you know, and we can negotiate that range based on whatever agreed, you know, confidence that we need. Um, that's, that's really the best we can do. And another great thing I love that you said is, and by the way, we will learn, you know, as, as we do, as we develop this and as we deliver, you know, both of us will learn and you'll learn that some of the stuff you thought you needed, you don't need. And some of the stuff you had no idea you needed, you absolutely need. And, you know, and we'll, we'll tweak and we'll change, you know, a, a, as we go and our, our probabilities of being able to deliver certain outcomes will change based on that new information that we get. So I, I, you know, I don't know if I faked my way through that answer Well, you, no, you good enough, but that's. No, no. I think, I think you answered it very well that, that it's just, you, you the, 
very top of your answer was like it's it's very difficult and there's no there's no one answer for how you can convince someone of the truth of the claim that you're making right and there's 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 two i think there's two sort of and again like i i came across this in sort of think for, of in financial modeling and things like that there are people who there's a sort of like positive thing where they believe it's achievable and there's a kind of negative thing where they think you're being evasive or weak if you can't if you if you refuse to give them that right and and they're saying oh you're just going to use this to take advantage of me to kind of like draw out the project or you just haven't thought about it hard enough or maybe you're not smart enough and don't understand the situation well enough. And when you when you when you've sort of when you've seen when you've pierced that veil yourself, it can be very frustrating because you think like you think that when I show you a chart now now of a, a projection going forward of something, whether it's a stock or or a cryptocurrency or something like that, that that's the reality. Now we know, and that's crazy. <laughs> yeah. That's crazy. That and it's, it's, it's and, and 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 but knowing that doesn't make the person stop being crazy, right? To to be to be to speak in a very self interested way about this, until you're stuck, you're you're just stuck with kind of matters of psychology and process and what what you can do. But that's why I really like the way you describe you focusing things on customer value. Um, and um, in addition, you have this this great um, example that you use of hurricanes. Um, uh, and 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 how like you know you you and you 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 go through. I think it was um, Sandy in the particular example that you use Hurricane Sandy to show like things really can change on a dime, but it doesn't mean you shouldn't try. It means you need to understand what a probabilistic forecast really is. Yeah, absolutely. And this, you know, this is, this is why I love the the work of, of say people like Annie Duke so much is, you know, I guess, you know, and, you know, she's maybe the one you should ask that, that earlier question, she might have a much better answer than you, but I mean, you essentially really need to think like a poker player. That's, that's, that's really, really, you know, her book is called thinking in bets, one of her books. Um, but that's, that's, that's how you, and, and, you know, when, when you get new information, not, not only can you not be afraid to change, um, it, it, it almost, um, necessitates or requires a change, you know, at least, at least a consideration of change. Um, and that's why, I, that's why I like the, the hurricane stuff. Cause if you go to the national hurricane center, they're not going to tell you that hurricane path with uh 100% certainty. They're not. In fact, they're very, very clear, you know, that this is, you know, this is a probabilistic model, you know, and you know, we're, we're looking at about 70% chance. When you see those graphs, you're looking at about a 70% chance. And well, well, you know, it's fine for people to get angry with the National Hurricane Center for, hey, why can't you give me 100%, you know, uh, 100%, 100% model? It's just not, that's just not the way the world works. It's just not the way the universe works. Um, you know, Richard Feynman talked, talked a lot about this. You know, it's, it's, it's one of the... It's one of the basics of nature. It's one of the building blocks of nature. Probability is intrinsic to nature. It's not. It's not a result of something. It's like it's intrinsic. You know, when you go down to the the quantum level or below. Now we're getting kind of philosophical, but you know, the, the, these types of things are you know are, are intrinsic. So, thinking that you can escape them, thinking that you're smarter because, like you said, oh, I showed a graph, and now there's there's uncertainty, or now there's certainty. That's that's the wrong way to think about it. I love, by the way, I love, I love how you talk about insanity, because uh, uh, yeah, human psychology is a big big part of this. You know, things like uh, behavioral economics, I think, enter into this big time. Well, and and something I will I will confess to be being bad at, which is probabilistic thinking. It it doesn't come naturally to everybody. In fact, it doesn't come naturally to most of us. And actually, um, maybe some of the listeners will have heard of this, but if you could explain a little bit the uh, the Monty Hall, uh, let's make a deal sort of classic example of of how like i mean i've 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 read and i've read the answer to why it works the way it does 
dozens of times and still haven't really, inter- well, not dozens, a few times. And I still can't, I couldn't reproduce the answer if I were asked to do it on my own. But if you could talk a little bit about the three doors um, and and what the sort of the counterintuitive kind of answer to what you should do in that scenario. I, I mean, I, I can I, I can try it, it, it. That definitely works better with with some visuals. But I, I'm happy to give it a shot. So the the idea is on uh, on let's make a deal. Uh, you know, a contestant is presented with with three closed doors. Uh, behind one of the closed doors is a brand new car, and behind the other two closed doors is a goat. And the objective of the game is really easy. If you pick the door that has the car, you win the car, right? Um, and so what what Monty Hall does is say, okay, contestant, please pick your door. And the contestant will pick a door. Let's say they they pick number number two, door number two. What Monty Hall will do then is once the contestant picks door number two, Monty Hall will open one of the other two doors, door number one or door, door number three, revealing where one of the goats is, one of the goats is, yeah. So let's say he opens door number three. So now... We've got the contestant who chose door number two. We've got door number three that's open and shows shows a goat. Monty Hall will go back to the contestants and say, okay, I'm going to give you one time opportunity here uh, to change your answer. If you want to, you can change your answer. You know, now that I've chosen, shown you there's a goat behind door number three, do you want to stick with your original answer of door number two or do you want to go to, uh, to door number one? Um, and most contestants, when given that opportunity to switch, will not. They will stick with their original choice um, because th- this gets into the, the psychology thing, I think, because the pain, the pain of switching, I think this is how I would explain it. The pain of switching and failing is much higher, much greater than the pain of staying and failing. So that's why most people will, 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 stay, will stay, even though from a mathematics perspective, it's, um, it's your, your odds are to- about, about double of uh, being right if you switch. Um, so, I, I, um, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say that's that's the part that breaks my brain. I mean, the, yeah. the kind of like, I mean, maybe maybe I'm sort of too impassive. The sort of, I don't think I would be too much subject to the kind of like, oh, the pain of switching and I made him regretting my mistake if I, if I switched and it turned out my original choice was right. But it's just that like the way my brain goes through that is no matter what, when I pick a door, there's going to be one that can be picked that has a goat behind it. So how can it possibly make it? That's going to be the same. Every time I pick a door, there's going to be one door that Monty Hall can pick that does have a goat behind it. So how can it possibly make a difference that when I switch? And of course, there is an answer to that. I think it has something to do with the fact that you've got more information now. Uh, the fact that, you know, the, and, and Monty Hall had more information than you did when he made his choice. It's something mm-hmm. along those lines. But like again, like it just doesn't come intuitively to me to, to get the sort of rigorous reason behind yeah. that. Well, I mean, I, I can take one more minute, maybe try to explain it, and you tell me if this helps you or not. But uh, for the listeners out there, uh, when when all three when all three doors are closed, any door that you choose, you've got a thirty three percent chance of being right. Okay, so once once you choose door number two, in my example, once you choose door number two, you have a thirty three percent chance of being right. What that really means, the way you really need to think about it, is you actually have a sixty six percent chance of being wrong. As once you chose that door, you have a 66% chance of being wrong. So when Monty Hall opens door number three for you, he's done you a huge favor because he's just showed you it's not door number three anymore, right? So remember, I now have a 66% chance of being wrong. That means that door that I just chose, that door number two, 66% chance of being wrong. Um, so I should probably, I should probably switch that if that makes sense, if that helps you at all. 
I, I could repeat the words back at you, but my, in, my, in, my, intu, my, you know what I mean? Like my intu, I could write down the answer correctly, but my, I guess what I'm confessing to is my intuition still doesn't really change. And yeah. You know? it's, and that, that's probability for you, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, 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 I don't know that I have a good feel for probabilistic thinking either. I mean, I know that I should be doing it, um, but that's, I think that's just human yeah. nature. We're just not good at it. Yeah, I know. And it's, and it's great. I mean, we were sort of making fun of crazy people earlier but for just believing, <laughs> believing projections, but, you know, and, and confessing to your own faults can also be, be helpful for understanding things and explaining things as well. Um, when it comes, when it comes to flow, so the concept of flow, uh, I, I think I might have a kind of fun way into asking you your thoughts on that, which is, I believe you have a kind of beef with Steve Tendon about his concept of flow. I say that, I say that humorously and with the knowledge that you're friendly with each other. Yeah. And, and, um, Steve has been a, a guest on the podcast in the past, um, and has, has a couple books on lean pub. And is, is that a good, is that actually a good framing? If it's not, please just like, give me your own concept of flow. I thought, I thought maybe a compare and contrast might help. Yeah. So, um, so, so, Steve, Steve is a, um, a very good friend of mine. Uh, we, we talk all the time. In fact, we just talked uh, yesterday, um, you know, as, as a matter of fact. Uh, and so um, Steve talks, uh, Steve Tendon talks a lot about uh, what's known as the theory, theory of constraints. Um, and um, I, uh, I personally have not found much, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I was going to say value, but I don't, I don't know if I don't know if that's the right word. Much, what, what, whatever it is, whatever that word is, um, in applying the the theory of constraints, I've 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 gotten much more bang for the buck in applying Deming. Or hopefully, people have heard of Deming, but um, but even Deming's mentor, uh, Short Walter Short, um, in their theory of variation. So it's not I'm I. I may come across this way. I don't mean to. I'm not saying that Steve is wrong and I'm right. I'm saying there are many, many competing theories in you know out there around flow, um, all of which are probably valid to um, you know to some degree. You know, I'm, I'm I just tend to favor more looking looking at flow from a variation perspective. Uh, Steve just tends to look at it more from the uh, from the theory of constraints perspective, um, and. Uh, if I'm being completely honest, depending on how many beers you get, get into me at the end of the day, we're probably both right. You know? So it's, you know, a lot of times we're probably just arguing over semantics and he points this out to me all the time. He's like, you know, Dan, you're doing, you know, you say you're not doing theory constraints, but you are doing theory constraints. And I have a hard time arguing with, with him when, when, when he says that. Um, yeah, maybe, maybe we could, uh, we could go into a little bit more detail there about what the, what the variation perspective is and what you mean by that. Um, I think I think probably a lot of our listeners will be familiar with with Deming and kind of like this kind of high level kind of thinking and how it sort of makes its way into these, you know, into post-it notes on boards or what have you. But um, uh, but yeah, if you could talk a little bit a little bit about the variation perspective that you mentioned. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, and it might it might help to um, to maybe start with the, the theory of constraints perspective, too. And again, I'll caveat this with I am not an expert at theory of constraints. So, again, if you get hate mail, this is this is all my fault. I might be saying it all wrong. But theory of constraints roughly says is that in in a given process, there is only one, uh, for lack of a better word, go governing constraint, right? There is, there is a, a part of your process that is going to govern the operation of the, the rest of the process. Uh, that's, that's, the, that's a constraint. And all decisions, all your decisions around how the process operates should be subordinated to understanding of where that constraint is and what's, what's commonly called is exploiting that constraint. It's, I think exploiting is a terrible word, but whatever. Um, the, the big assumption with the theory of constraints then is that you can that you can identify where that constraint is. Uh, 
right? That's 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 the big underlying. And even even the people in the theory constraints community, I think, would say, hey, you know what? If you guess wrong, you know, you, you're applying the theory constraints, and you guess wrong where that that constraint is, you're actually going to do more harm than good, right? Um, and that's that's why I come in because, um, you know. Forgetting for a second the whole debate around, you know, is software development complex or chaotic or simple or whatever, forgetting the whole Stacy or Kinevin model stuff. Um, there is there is a lot of variability in what we do. You know, there's there's variability in item size, there's variability in people's ability to do work, there's variability in how processes are structured, there's variability in global pandemics coming through, you know. I mean, there's there's all kinds of variability that we that we have to deal with that I think make it very, very, very hard in um in a process to say yes without a doubt that's where the constraint is because that variability will change from day to day it will change and it will make it look the very very variability and flow variation of flow will make it look like constraint is here one day and then here another day and then here another day um and so that's why i think understanding and controlling for for variability i believe um, is a little bit more effective approach. That's not to say, just want to be clear, that's not to say you shouldn't study theory constraints and, and read a little bit more uh, about that because in, in your context, maybe it is very, very, very easy to see where that constraint is. And maybe to give people an image, so what would an example of a constraint be, for example, if we're talking about, if we're actually applying this to a circumstance, like let's say, for example, um, you've got, uh, you're managing you're managing a big software development project mm-hmm. and you're watching, uh, like let's say you've got 10, 10 rows where you're watching things flow from left to right. So started to finished. Um, and you can see, I think there are apps that the apps you can use that you can also do this physically, but you can change the colors to sort of like they'll stay green as long as they're good. And they'll start sort of dimming to red if they're going yeah. bad. And then, you, so a theory of constraints person would probably want, I'm just making this up, but like, would, would, would they, would they go there and look for a constraint? Like, not enough developers working on that. Would would that be a constraint? So so something like that. This this may let's maybe even if if, if I may take that Please. metaphor, maybe simplify it a little bit. Um, let, let's look at a single team, and let's say on this team we have analysts and developers and testers, and let's say, you know, again, I'm not saying you should do this, but let's say that those those people are are very very siloed. You know, analysts can only do analysis, developers can only do development, and testers can only do. Uh, do testing again, just to make the example simple. Um, and so let's stay on that team. You've got 10 analysts, one developer and 22 testers, right? Just for example. Um, well, it's pretty obvious there that de- development's probably your, your constraint because um, the developers are not going to be able to, to, to keep up with the, the work that the, the analysts are probably throwing over the wall at them. Um, and then your testers are probably going to be starved for work because the poor developer is, you know, you know, overwhelmed and nothing's getting through to test. And we've got 22 testers sitting around. So, so um, that, that constraint is, is it's, it's called a constraint because that's, that's where the, the, well, I was going to say, I was going to say the slowest flow is happening, but it actually manifests itself as the longest amount of time to, I think, to get, to get, to get through that, that queue. So I don't know if that, if that, if that helps a little bit, that's, that's where, wherever that flow is, is constrained, where we're not getting, not getting the throughput that, that we expect. That's. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. No, I think that's a really great, really very clear example, um, especially with yeah. the sort of like, you know, the numbers being put that way. It's a very clear example. And it puts it in the context of one team trying to develop, to, you know, some um, app or features or something like that. Um, uh, and, and just for people listening, it's so, it's so interesting how much like depth there is to this field um, uh, that m- one might not be, from, and I'm just a dabbler myself, but you know, so for example, you might think from that example, oh, what we need 
what we need to do is throw more more people at the problem. And then there's this concept that people who've read about software development will know about the mythical man month, for example, where, you know, what what was that? I saw a joke when I was researching for this that someone made. I don't know if it was you, but it was like, um, if you if you want someone to finish reading a book faster, just buy them another copy, buy them a second copy mm. or something like that. But it sort of yeah. captures the spirit of the mythical man month. And so the idea of like managing what, what you do with that constraint kind of, you know, isn't necessarily straightforward, even if you've identified it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that this is where this is this is the fundamental problem of flow is we, we like to say it's it's unintuitive to the point of being counterintuitive uh, because you're right. You know, initial reaction might be let's, let's throw let's throw a whole bunch of people at it. Let's throw a whole bunch of money at it. But in the short term, the absolute best thing that you can do when you've identified that constraint or just in general, when you've been, when you've identified variation in your flow is to work on less. Uh, to try and do more is actually to work on less. And there's a whole bunch of queuing theory to support the fact that, you know, when, when you see problems with flow like that, work on less. That's that's the whole, uh, I would say, the whole underlying um, organizing principle behind Kanban. And that just freaks people out. That's just like, what? I, I'm, I'm going to get more stuff done faster by working on less? Yes. You know, and then once we have a good understanding of that, then we can talk about, well, should, should we be adding people, you know, should we be spend, spending money or whatever. But until you've got control of the number of things that we're working on, any of those types of decisions are are premature and not just a little premature, like very, very premature. That's interesting. That reminded me of uh, a, a metaphor that you use uh, in, I think, the introduction to one of your books, where you talk about how, like, basically what you've done, what, what often you might find if you start analyzing your process, you find that you've done a DDoS attack on yourself mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> by, by I mean, I'm laughing, but like, you know, or uh, distributed denial of service attack for those unfamiliar, where basically it's, you probably heard of it, like a, the website's gone down because some bad actors sort of threw too many kind of eyeballs at it at, at the same time and it couldn't handle the load but we often do this kind of thing to ourselves because it's so it's so it, no, it's not just easy but it's kind of like makes you feel productive to start new tasks and start new tasks and start new tasks but if you're not focusing on actually finishing the ones that you've started now you're kind of working on unfinished things all the time that never get done yeah I, I, I love that you phrase that. Yes, it feels more productive to start more stuff, but you're actually more productive if you finish more stuff. You know, that's that's where you're actually more productive. And this is this is where I think you know when bringing in some of the metrics and things like that to the the conversation, um, simultaneously make it easier and harder. Um, be, 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 because of all the things that we've talked about, you know, because of, you know, people need to need to understand probability and then people need to accept that, Hey, you, their intuition is letting them down. Yeah. And there's, there's actually, that reminds me of something that I, I thought about a fair amount, which is, um, uh, you know, and um, one thing that one can, one thing that when, when people are managing are paying teams of people to do work, there is a strong like a psychological need to have everybody be busy all the time. Mm-hmm. Otherwise you feel like you're wasting money. And so for example, sometimes if everybody's busy all the time, that means you have no one available to sort of handle something unexpected that needs to be done. But another version of that problem, like I live here every day in the city of Victoria, where um, the city loves to operate. It has lots of people to operate machines to do work. And very clearly, the ethos is that nobody should ever be idle. So what that means is there's guys literally blowing leaf blowers at like a single leaf, (laughs) leaf pasted to the sidewalk in the rain, you know, because it would be a waste 
to have that person not be working. And it's like, well, actually what it does is it just means that we're constantly assaulted every all throughout every day of our lives with all this unnecessary disruption to our lives mm. because people don't want to wait. They, they don't want to just leave the equipment idle. <laughs> so once you've got it, that means someone needs to be driving it around all the time or whatever. Yeah. Um, and uh, how, I mean, how, how do you, do you have any kind of like big answers for if you if you were brought into an organization like where where you saw this problem like you're doing too much but that doesn't mean you should fire anybody right how do you how do you explain that well one um, I mean there, there's there's several several good examples out there um, and extreme example if we talk about society at large an extreme example of of society on, that on, we we understand this is we literally play, pay uh, you know fire persons and paramedics to sit around and, and do nothing waiting for, like I said, like you were saying, waiting for that emergency. Can you imagine if, you know, um, you know, a paramedics, let's just say paramedics showed up for their job and there was no call out or whatever. So we started forcing them to go, <laughs> go pick up a leaf blower, you know, and start, yeah. start cleaning the sidewalks. And then, you know, they're, yeah, they're like three miles away from the hospital by, you know, when the, when the call comes in. Um, so, you know, that, that's, that's kind of, kind of the extreme example is, you know, if, if you don't, if you don't build slack into the system, then, then very, very, very bad things are going to happen. Uh, companies like FedEx and UPS understand this very well. You know, they've got, you know, um, they've got tons of empty planes, tons of empty trucks, a lot of times either circling in the air or just driving. Um, so when, whenever there is a problem, they can divert, you know, those, those empty resources, not that I'm necessarily calling people resources. That's another conversation um, to, uh, you know, to go, to go help out with those problems of flow. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's 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 funny how we think about waste. You know, most people think that idleness is waste. Where, you know, this this is where this to me this is the brilliance of Toyota. They they realized it was like you know, um, overburdening. That's that's really what's waste. Yeah, it's it, that actually reminds me. I was just going to say another example of of sort of like the way we sort of like feel waste when we're just not thinking it through properly can be. For example, um, I was just thinking, you know, like let's say a paramedic. I've got a I've got a cousin who's a, a firefighter, and so you know he's, he's done some self defense training, right? There's a certain way of thinking where you can say, what if he got to the end of his career and he never used it? You know, does he then relate to it? Oh, I wasted all that time doing self-defense training because I never actually got attacked. <laughs> it's like, no, yeah. no, it wasn't, it wasn't a waste. Uh, but that's where prob probability comes in, right? Because like there is going to be some proportion of firefighters who brought, because they're not just fighting fires, right? Like they're, they do all kinds of other things as well. And there's going to be some proportion of them that do encounter this. So someone somewhere has to be counting the beans and going, well, actually everybody should be devoting this much of their time, their training time to self-defense because, you know, add actuarial analysis here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's the whole, it's the whole. Not not to get too overly technical, but it's the whole. You know, ex post versus ex ante um, analysis. You know, this and what we're talking about way way before too. You know, people think that all this stuff should be knowable up front, and if you get an outcome where hey, I never used self self, self defense. I think is what you said. And I never once once you know that sample path, and you say, oh well, then I should have never should have never done it. Well, that's you know that's kind of the that the ex ante ex post analysis you know just because the sample path is known doesn't necessarily mean there weren't there weren't other possibilities you could have just as equally you know been attacked 50 times in your career you know or whatever so um 
on on the to bring up another technical term and, and your latest book uh, flow metrics for scrum teams the ter- the word scrum is in there um mm-hmm. and uh in the introduction to the book it says the book is partly about things things dan disliked about scrum um <laughs> so i i think there are probably people listening who are waiting to hear you talk about that um what 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 do, what's your sort of general position well what is scrum what's your general position on it and uh yeah my so my, my general position on it, it, it it's not it's not that scrum is necessarily um a bad thing i think i think scrum scrum had a place you know if we if we, if we rewind 20 years ago um because we were talking about waterfall and, and the rights of agile practices you know 20 years 20 years ago if i if i was starting out um and i had to choose waterfall versus scrum well of course i would you know at that time I would have chosen Scrum hands down, right? You know, every day of the week and twice on Sunday, right? That that that's that's the way I would have chosen to work. Um, but um, and, and maybe because I lived through it, you know, I always think I always think of Scrum as a reaction to waterfall. To me, that's that's the reason that Scrum existed, and that's that's the reason why it was successful is because it was a good uh, a good alternative, a potentially a great alternative uh, to waterfall. But think about all the things that have happened specifically in software development, and I would argue maybe potentially knowledge work in general, but especially software development over the years, you know, around the 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 tooling and the practices that we we've developed. You know, we you know we developed things like continuous integration, you know, 20 years ago, how many companies did you know that were doing continuous integration? And now it's, it's kind of table stakes 20 years ago. How many people that you, did, you know, companies did you know that were doing continuous deployment continuous delivery? Um, are they anybody, but now, now it's table stakes. And so the engineering practices have evolved to be more and more and more continuous. What I don't understand is why haven't agile practitioners you know, caught up to that. And, and, and if, if your engineering practices are continuous, your process has to be continuous too. Your process has to be continuous to, to support that. Um, and so, you know, if I had, if I had a gripe with, with Scrum, it would be, it's still kind of anchored in that kind of batchy, batchy thinking where I, I think we need, we need much more, more continuous processes to support the way that we work today. And yeah, just to drill in on what you what you mean when you're talking about continuous processes, um, uh, you know, for for agile kind of management, um, you talk about uh, aging work, the concept of aging work in progress. Mm-hmm. And I think it's the one you call the most important chart you'll ever see or something like that. But the aging work in mm-hmm. progress chart. So if you could talk yeah, a little bit about what what aging work in progress is and, you know, how, how, what a chart like that looks like, things like that. Yeah, the, the the idea behind aging is, so if, if we talk about uh, flow being the way to optimize customer delivery, um, well, the, the, the important part of that is that we deliver something to the customer. The, the problem with things like a definition of done, Scrum, Scrum has a, an emphasis on the definition of done and, and um, you know, and things like that. Uh, the there are good things about that, but the problem with that is you have to actually be done before you know something's wrong, right? I mean, but but by that time, that's a lot of times that's too late of a signal, you know, from a flow perspective, we want a signal as early as possible that something may be going wrong. Um, and the, the best signal that I found by far, I mean, by far, is to focus on something called aging. So, you know, in, in a process, you, 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 you've always got whether you know it or not, you've always got at least two defined points, you know, a point at which something is considered started and a point at which something is considered finished. Um, and what aging measures is how long has it been since this thing that we're working on, this this value item, whatever it is, how long has it been since it's crossed that start point? Um, because if we're, if, we're, if we're monitoring that, especially in relation to how long it's taken us to complete stuff in the past, that's gonna give us a very, very, very early signal, even before the thing is done 
that, hey, maybe something's wrong here. It's it's bigger than what we thought. Maybe we don't have the right people, you know, on here. Maybe, you know, maybe it needs to be, you know, broken up or better analysis needs to be done. Um, it's it's blocked, you know, wh- whatever it is, right? It's going to give us, it's, the aging is going to give us a, you know, a wonderful signal um, that some action may need to be taken. Um, actually, you mentioned you mentioned earlier living through something um, and knowledge work, and um, we've just. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be asking a question about metrics, so I'll start. I'll start from over here, but I'll end up over there. Uh, okay. But um, we just went through a pandemic. Um, it's still mm-hmm. it's still still going on uh, to some extent, although a lot of the sort of lockdown and restrictions have have have, have you know been lifted. Um, but this brought with it a huge shift towards um, uh, working from home, as people call it, uh, mm-hmm. and or working remotely. Um, you know, there's areas like medicine, for example, where like they say that, you know, there's 10, 10 years of progress in, in one in one year in terms of telemedicine and, and things like that. Um, but one thing that one challenge that sort of remote work for, for organizations that aren't familiar with it presents is uh, monitoring. Mo- I mean, the crude the crude version of it is monitoring people. The sort of more, I guess, to use loaded language, refined ver- version is monitoring what you're calling processes. Um, mm-hmm. But there was a there was a lot of um, there was a sort of genre of news article about how bosses can't monitor their workers anymore and how this is a big big problem for companies. Um, and I was just wondering, just since I've got you here, and you know this is kind of you know, your area, what's been your what have your thoughts been as you've been watching this happen, or even being being a part of it? Uh, if if you had any sort of work that you had to do that was related to it. Well, I mean, for my, so uh, for, for, first, uh, shameless plug here. Uh, it's one of the reasons why I love a, a, a Kanban-esque approach is because, and you've probably heard this uh, this idiom or euphemism or whatever you want to call it, but in Kanban, we focus on the work, not the worker. You know, uh, what we really care about is getting those things done. I don't care who's working on it. I don't care what they're Go. I, I don't care. It's like, are we getting, are we getting these, this, this stuff done? And if we're not getting this stuff done, what, you know, how are we as a team or organization going to self-organize uh, to solve, to solve those problems? Um, so uh, the, uh, my, my, whatever answer I give is going to be kind of, you know, colored by, by that perspective. So I don't necessarily see a problem with, uh, you know, re- remote working or being in the office or hybrid. Um, uh, my, my guess is, I don't really have a strong opinion on this, but my guess is some, some hybrid is, is going to prevail. Um, you know, with the, the, the genies out of the bottle, right. Pandora's opened that box and, you know, we're not, we're, we're not going to close it again. Um, and I don't think that's, that's necessarily, you know, a bad thing. Again, as long as we have, you know, you know, an ability um, to, uh, you know, I, I think, like I said, I think it would be more about monitoring the work and not necessarily who's doing the work. And if if we see a problem with how work is getting done, you know, then then questions need to be asked. But it's not the question from a Deming perspective. You know, if if we see teams are are dropping in product productivity. The question isn't why do you suck, right? That's not the question. The question is what about how we've designed our process is failing us? And what are the changes in the process that we need to make to enable people in this brave new world uh, to be as effective as they can be? Yeah, my, that, no, that's a really great answer. Thanks for that. My, my um, kind of anecdotal kind of 
or vicarious experience of it was um, of, of sort of like the way that these changes were being represented was very, very grumpy. Uh, because I think what one thing that was exposed, the story wasn't told this way, generally speaking, but what was exposed was that a lot of organizations and a lot of managers didn't exist to get the work done primarily. They existed for some kind of ethic, right? Uh, the, and 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 um, uh, an example would be, you know, I, I read numerous examples of this where it's kind of like, how do I know if I send the analyst off to make a presentation on X and they come back seven hours later that they really spent seven hours working on it. And it's like, no serious person thinks that way. On a person who might be rich, they might be successful, they might be in a position of power, they might have just success after success and promotion after promotion their whole lives. But that is not a serious way to to achieve anything other than maintain the organization's ethic. Um, and I think a lot of what was exposed was, and these, these, again, I guess represented as, oh, workers just want to sit around in their sweatpants. And it's like, like actually what they what they really want to do is work they really want to achieve the the goals that they're there to do rather than be monitored all the time for keystrokes and what have you and if you just yeah. if you if you just actually one of the big lessons is if you actually just trust people to have enough the self respect that they mostly do have you're actually going to end up with a much more productive team and whether you settle on a hybrid you know model or not it's it's making sure that you're you're actually trying to get the thing done yeah. It's the most important thing yeah. that you can do. Right. And and not to sound like a broken record, but certainly certainly there's going to be a percentage of people out there that are going to take advantage of that system. I mean that 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 is going to happen. Um, but again, if we if we take a Deming approach, it's like, yeah, maybe maybe five percent of the people are taking advantage of the system, but ninety-five percent of the people are probably, you know, exactly like what like what you're saying. And they, you know, they they want to be empowered um and they want to be given the you know independence and autonomy just just to get their work done. We have a tendency to focus on that five percent. Well, because there's five percent over there, you know that you know that, that are doing bad. That means the whole process is broken. Well, actually, no. It's quite quite the opposite. It's actually probably working much better than we than we want to acknowledge. And uh, yeah, speaking speaking just generally of the pandemic and the effects it has as well, um, or it's had as well. Um, uh, so you mentioned Kanban as a strategy, um, but you know, people who've heard about it will probably have a very specific image in their head of like a whiteboard or even a wall with post-it notes in rows and columns mm -hmm. on it um, and stuff like that. How, how has, have you seen, what have you seen? Have you seen people, I mean, obviously people kind of had to shift more towards, you know, using apps basically to sort of manage this kind of stuff, even if they, even if they would favor having a physical wall. Do you think that there's something important that's lost by not having people gathering in one place to view the same physical thing? Probably. Um, yeah. I mean, because I always said before the pandemic, I always said my, my favorite Kanban tool was a physical board. That was by, by far and away my, uh, my, my, favorite, uh, my favorite tool. And the thing is now have, having developed a tool of myself, uh, for, for myself, um, the, the, the truth of the matter is that, that you know, all tools work and all tools don't work. Just, it really just comes down to, to how you, how you use them. So, you know, people, people love to rail against Jira, you know, people love to rail against Azure DevOps, you know, whatever. And it's, you know, it's like you, you can, for, for Kanban, you know, is, is Jira ideal? Well, for the, for the expert, you know, user out there, it probably isn't, but for most teams, it's probably good enough. Same thing with Azure DevOps. You know, there, there are things that drive me nuts about both of those things, but are they workable? Are, are, are they usable? You know, uh, absolutely. So is there something that's lost from people not being together and, and huddled around, a, you know, a physical board? 
maybe probably but i don't think any of that is 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 fatal um or overcomable or or any of that you know i i i think we've learned in the past couple of years in fact um you know how, how to overcome some of those things so i'm i'm not that worried about it uh, on that um, optimistic note, um, <laughs> maybe it's time to end in the interest of time to move on to the last part of the interview where we talk about your experience as a writer. Um, and so as someone who sort of, you know, uh, thinks about process and stuff like that, I'm just curious if you can ask if you could talk a little bit about what's do you do you that doesn't necessarily mean you do, but do you have a process for writing? Do you monitor your self monitor your progress and things like that? Um, so I, I, I I used to, I used to be a big outliner, you know. I used to you know I, like um, I'd be like I'd, I'd have an idea and I'd sit down and I'd kind of kind of write an outline of, of all all the stuff that I want to say. Um, that has evolved dramatically over over several years to where um, anymore I'm 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 driven by oh this is going to sound bad but I'm going to say it anyway. <laughs> anymore I'm driven by anger, you know. So, so something will just piss me off. And I'll just I'll just start start writing it, and I I find that uh, taking that more you know uh, stream of consciousness you know type of type of approach, just have a blank piece of paper and just start start just start typing, um, is what what works for me. And for, as a writer, that was probably the biggest thing for me to get over. Of you know you've got you've got the tyranny of the blank page, and you you feel like every sentence that you have to write has to be perfect, right? It has to be exactly what what you want it to be. And this idea that, oh, yeah, you can always edit it later and you can change and rearrange. And, you know, for, for me, it's it's much more effective. Just 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 start typing. And, you know, it's it's OK to, to throw stuff away. Um, so that's how that's how my, my thinking has evolved that's, over the past several years. That's a really great answer. Um, I kind of I mean, I kind of say that partly because I identify with it. Um, uh, I mean, anger is a, anger is a form of passion. Um, it's, it's also, uh, which is not, not a, which is a good thing to have if you're writing usually, um, uh, anger is also distinct from rage. Rage is uncontrolled anger. That's what you want mm -hmm. to, you definitely want to avoid that. Um, uh, but anger is a fine motivation for doing things in particular. I mean, you know, I was, I was getting angry myself mentioning this genre of, of terrible article published in major publication after major publication about the future of work and working from home by people who didn't evidently didn't take 10 minutes to kind of look into the fact that, you know, there's a lot of research and whole areas of study that have existed for decades on this kind of stuff. There's, you know, companies like HashiCorp that have never had an office, you know, mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, but, it, but instead, you know, by just to pick an example, like, you know, the, the Globe and Mail in Canada, they're, they're expert on what's going to happen to the future of work as a CEO of an office space <laughs> leasing company in Toronto. Like, yeah. yeah, right. That's, that's, that's a good source for information. Um, right. But, but anger, anger, I mean, you know, and not, not just in, um, you know, the kind of blogosphere where obviously anger plays a role and kind of like, I'm going to get, I'm going to get a short post out, but it is, it is important, I think, to sometimes to sort of, you take that as a, as a good motivation um, mm. for getting, getting you and why, why are you angry, right? Well, you should think about it. Like you might actually have have very good reason <laughs> to be angry yeah. um and then and then as a writer you're sort of confronted with the, the second keep in mind you have an opera probably have an opportunity to do second second draft or or to edit it later and so you can kind of shave off the parts that were maybe not so well controlled <laughs> when you were writing yeah. Uh, yeah. but i think anger is a anger is a great motivation for for a great way to get started writing something well, and and if if I can give give a plug for for Lean Pub, it's, it's the whole reason that I picked Lean Pub as a um, a, as my first medium for for publishing was because 
I could get it wrong. And there was almost, there was zero cost, essentially zero cost to me to, to get something wrong. You know, it's like, oh, okay, I'll just fix it and push another button and Hey, look, it's, 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 it's published. You know, I don't, I don't quite like that. I, you know, um, so that the, um, you know, lean pub acted as a wonderful outlet for that, for that anger, you know, I could just, you know, I could just, I could, I could write something, I could put it up and, um, I'm, I'm, I'm a, I'm a very visual writer too. You know, I like, I like to see it, um, which is one thing we should talk about. I don't know if I necessarily agree with separating out formatting from content. I don't know if I necessarily agree with that to me, format is content, but that's, that's a, maybe you can have me back and we can have this whole philosophical debate about, um, you know, about that. Um, but, but anyway, I, li I like to see it. And with LeanPub, you know, it's just so easy for me to put something new out there, generate a PDF and just kind of see how it looks, you know? Uh, it's, it's, you brought up, uh, formatting and content. Um, uh, so I'm, I'm, I've, I've got a doctorate in English literature for my sins. Um, so, <laughs> oh, no. oh no, oh no, I stepped in and I'm sorry. No, 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 no. This is, I mean, like, you know, uh, uh, this is actually an argument I've had from your, from your from your, what I imagine your, some version of what your position is like, you know, and, you know, borrowing, if you want to go all high philosophical borrowing from Hegel about the unity of form and content in a very deep, that's not just, he would make that claim, not just about writing if you know what i mean but about like yeah. history itself but um no 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 there are some projects where formatting and content are, are not distinct i mean you know to pick from the history of english literature tristram shandy is, is is an example of that um but there's all kinds of other things where where form and content are, in, in, from a certain perspective of like hermeneutical analysis, there's just no distinction um, for for some projects. Whether you know all the fancy words or whatever, it's just obviously the form and the content are not distinct. That can be from a for for example from an experiential kind of perspective, um, you know. Uh, and I certainly agree with that. But what but what for those listening, what 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 you're bringing up is the fact that when people encounter formatting problems with LeanPub, uh, uh, or lim I should say limitations, our textbook answer is formatting is procrastination while you're writing. Yeah. That qualification at the end there sort of le leaves us a little bit of an out from the stronger <laughs> claim that's being made there. But, uh, but it is true that that is something we do say. And I, I do, I'd say it myself. I believe that it is 95% of the time the right thing to tell a writer. You shouldn't be worrying. And I, and I, and I'm like talking about myself there where it's like, oh, like let's go off in the format. You're not writing anymore. You're not writing anymore. But every time I say it, I feel bad. Because, because I do believe that formatting is very important uh, for 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 most for for lots and lots of projects. Well, I, I mean, I, I would, um, and, and and you know, I just just hopefully, I, you know, I was just having a, a you know a dig at your expense there. Um, oh yeah. But if if but the thing is, if we do take the kind of small batch, because you you know, Lean Pub's all about publish early, publish often, right? That's 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 really why I, you know I think I, I think it exists, which is wonderful. Um, but the publish early, publish often to me, it's like when when I'm when I'm looking at a revision of of something I've written, I'm trying to look at it from the perspective of how. My, my consumer is going to and if it's just kind of trash you know it's like you know if i can't tell the difference between is you know is this is this a new heading or is this you know a new section of the book and uh, did i reference that the figure right you know that because you, you probably saw my book so i think my first book has 120 graphics in it or some, something ridiculous like that um which was was painful um you know in in lean, lean pubs uh, you know original markdown flavor was a was painful uh, to get all those, uh, you know, all those images just right. Um, but 
So anyway, yeah, no, no, no. I, I really appreciate the the feedback, I and mean, that that's great. And and the um, you know, one of the one of the sort of on that note, one of the um requests that comes we get over and over again is like it would be great to see an instant rendering of my page um, because the way LeanPub works, to, if you're using one of our our writing modes, we have an upload writing mode. So by the way, for anyone listening, like if you don't want to learn any of this stuff, you, if you've got a if you've got an ebook file, you can upload it to LeanPub and be making eighty percent royalties in five minutes. Uh, but yeah. if you want to use one of our writing modes. We have a word writing mode as well. Uh, it's, it's rather limited in terms of formatting, but most Lima books are written in plain text. Uh, and what that means is they have to go through a kind of rendering. So the, our book generators, as we call them, read the instructions that you've written because you don't, you don't just write the sort of paragraphs. You have to write the formatting instructions in there too. Like this is a chapter heading. It's, you don't, you don't, you, it's a pound sign, um, but, um, <laughs> uh, but but then there needs to be this rendering going on. And so a lot of then so what you have to do is you just kind of have to cross your fingers and hope you got it right and click the button and then maybe go down to page 182 where you made your latest change and see did that actually work. And that is an inherently painful process. And it is something we've had people ask for like an instant, an instant rendering of the page, you know, right on the left, rendering on the right, stuff like that. And you know, it's it's possible that someday we'll have we'll have something along those lines. Uh, but definitely like we we you know, we know that that there's these, especially when it comes to formatting, when you're, there's just, there is really just an inherent kind of difficulty when it's not WYSIWYG or what you see is what you get, right? There's, there's yeah, some, yeah. there's some difference between what you do and, and when what's, what you actually write and what's produced. Um, with that, with that said, um, the last question I always like to ask on the podcast, if the guest is a lean pub author is if there was uh, one magic feature we could build for you, or if there was one thing other than formatting that you were constantly sh- sh- shaking your fist at the screen and shouting at LeanPub for that we could fix for you, is there anything that you can think of that you would ask us to do? Uh, so, and that, that's I, I was I was just thinking about it, even before you reached out to me for for the podcast writing the last book. Um, the the only thing that really makes me angry, I apologize, it's a formatting thing. Um, but yeah, if I have several, if I have several several headings, you know, if I have like a heading one, heading two, heading three, heading heading four, um, and because I reached out to sport and asked if I could do this and they said, no, but I just, I want to be able to give, you know, different, different styles or different fonts or different, whatever for each of those, each of those subheadings. And they said, no, this it's, it's impossible to do that. Um, yeah, we, 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 we created a story based on that feedback. Um, and for discussion, it's, it's, um it's not something we're going to do anytime soon, unfortunately, sorry about that. But, but yeah, what, 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 what Daniel's talking about for anyone listening is that like we've got heading level heading one level heading two level heading three and we just do what what we decide with with that formatting instruction you can't tweak it so to make it different font choose a different font from the body font or where or well we, we know you can set the title font but that's basically you can't okay. change it yeah you, you but it's a global setting you can't do it on a per per heading or per heading and or and you can't do it on a heading level uh thing either yeah. And I can see how that'd be very frustrating, especially because if you use things like Microsoft Word, you can easily just select that text and sort of change the change the color or change the font or make it, you know, what what well you can make ours italics. But I so I, I understand I understand the request, um, and yeah, we did we did we did see it, um, and and uh, yeah, so, sorry sorry, the answer is that that's not going to be happening anytime <laughs> that's, 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 it's, it's it's a and I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but it, it, where it really becomes a problem is in in editing, you know, when you because you know I'll cut and paste whole sections, you know, to different different parts of the book. And I'm like, oh, I had this in chapter two. It's really a chapter seven thing. But if all the headings look the same, I don't, you know, and then I lose. I'm like, oh shit, was this really a, a subheading of this or whatever? And 
intelligence. Yeah, but, you know, I'm no, selfish no, and I'm, I'm lazy, so and, you'll just have to know that. Well, and, and you should be, and it's our job. It's our job to you know give give authors what they need. And by the way, like you know, if there's if there's lots of features that we do have that you do, like, they're there because someone did exactly what you just did now years ago or, or last week, and and, and we we responded with by saying okay. Um, so we really appreciate appreciate the feedback. Um, uh, yeah, it's um. No, I, no sorry, I was, I was just gonna say, but but I. I Again, if I, if I can end on a positive note, there is a reason I keep coming back to LeanPub. There's a reason I just just published the the, the uh, Flowmetrics for Scrum book just published I think two weeks ago, maybe maybe three weeks ago, or whatever. Yeah, and, and just the just the the uh, like the, the whole philosophy behind LeanPub, uh, the fact that I can keep my copyright, the fact uh, the the thing that honestly the original thing that sold me on LeanPub was it's so open. You're like, here we'll even create the files. So you can export this thing off to Amazon and sell your stuff to Amazon. Honestly, that was the thing that hooked me, and I was like, this this is just a wonderful that that's just a wonderful thing. So I will keep I will keep coming back to LeanPub and publishing all my books because of because of the openness of the platform. I just love it. Yeah, thanks thanks for mentioning that. I really appreciate that. That actually might give me an opportunity to to I sort of like I almost buried the lead here, which is we actually we actually do have another kind of out, and it isn't for when it comes to formatting, and it's an export based out, and we we have InDesign export, um, and the idea there is that you can write your write your book on LeanPub, and you could potentially like not care about you could be like I'm a writer, I don't I don't do formatting. That's for book designers, and so we actually have a thing where you can export the InDesign files, and we we have had people in the past who are like I'm going to give the, I'm. I'm, I'm familiar with the conventional publishing process. I'm the writer. I write the manuscript. Then I'm going to, even if they're self-publishing, they're like, I'm going to hand this off to a book designer that I'm going to pay and they can use that. Um, and, and when it comes to the, the openness, yeah, the, I think one of, one of the things that we sometimes have a hard time communicating and it's, that's all our fault is that, you know, when you write a book on LeanPub, you don't have to just publish on LeanPub. We give you go. You don't have to publish it on LeanPub at all. Um, uh, we just want authors using our platform and 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 that kind of thing. And um, you know, in the self-publishing world, I don't know if you're familiar with the term "going wide," but that's kind of the the sort of settled upon technical term for one approach to self-publishing is put it on all the put, put it on all the platforms. That's the position we've taken. Um, uh, we we do say if you're doing your own promoting, you're probably making more money per sale on LeanPub. So if you're making a specific personal recommendation, like you're standing in front of a conference, probably point them to LeanPub is the best <laughs> idea. But if but we don't have near obviously we don't have nearly the eyeballs of Amazon. So if you want to get the eyeballs and the sort of conventional recognition, please go put your book on Amazon uh, and and go wide. Um, the other version is put your eggs in one basket. Is it's, it's the is the very technical term that people yeah. use and just put it in one place and put all your and the idea there is put all your marketing in one spot not not right. in multiple spots well uh thank you very much for taking the time out of what i'm sure is a beautiful day in the miami area uh to to talk to me and to talk to our audience and thank you very much for being a lean pub author we really appreciate it thank no thank you for the platform thanks for everything that you do um and, and thanks for the invitation i i mean I, I was just looking at the clock it was almost an hour and a half we've been talking it doesn't feel like that at all so uh hope, hope the listeners feel the same way when we get to the, the, the version of this um but yeah i can listen to myself talk you know all day but anyway th thanks so much for the opportunity to, to come and talk to you today i've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it and uh I look forward to hopefully some future conversations Thanks. And as always, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter Podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a LeanPub author yourself, please check out our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.